Um, but I do wonder <clears throat> if you've noticed that one of the last places in our culture where people sort of fumble over, uh, uh, over how to express something that they truly are in awe of is when they start to talk about space, the cosmos. You know, they use words like super and extra and, and giant and massive to, to express this bigness that the astronomers are observing. But all of those attempts failed about 10 years ago when scientists discovered, discovered the largest, uh, most massive star they've ever observed. They gave it this very sexy name, uh, R136A1. And they went on to explain that this star was 265 times more dense than our sun. Two years later, they revised that estimate after using the Hubble telescope and said, actually, it's 315 times more dense than our sun. One researcher was quoted as saying, this thing is so big, it defies description. So when was the last time that you you observed, you experienced, that you, that you encountered or, or studied something that was so big that it defied description. You know, maybe it was your first trip to the Grand Canyon. Maybe it was a beautiful sunset that you saw on vacation, a, a gorgeous mountain range. Maybe it was more emotional, the first time you ever fell in love, uh, the first time that that devastation you felt when that love fell apart, maybe the birth of your children. But here's my question. Do you remember what you sounded like when you began to talk about that experience? You probably rambled a little bit. Uh, you're searching for words. You, you said and a lot. You go on and on in this long run-on sentence. Why? Because amazement will almost always express itself in, in this kind of unorganized litany of words. This feverish sort of grasping for expressions to cover whatever's happening to you. When was the last time that happened to you? Because if you could relate to it, maybe you can feel a little bit about what Paul is feeling in the opening of Ephesians. Because last week we sort of saw Paul opening his mouth to contemplate a blessing that God deserves because of the blessing that he has done and wrought in us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this week, we want to look at that litany of somewhat unorganized excitement words that he uses to sort of see exactly what it is he's come to believe. Think about it this way. You probably have heard either us or sometime in Sunday school talk about what theologians refer to as the order of salvation. And all it is is just a logical listing of the things that have to happen, theologically speaking, in order for a person to become a Christian. It starts from before time with one's eternal election. It comes into time with one's effectual calling. It then creates faith and repentance in the life of the believer, followed by their justification and their sanctification and their glorification, the order of salvation. But when I was in seminary, I read one guy I always remembered who said that he didn't necessarily like the sort of step-by-step, seemingly chronological order of it all. And rather what he said was, our, our, our salvation's way too complex and multifaceted to be described like that. Really? It's more like a diamond gem, perfectly cut, perfectly shaped. And of course, if you've never seen one that's really beautiful, when you look at it, every time you turn those facets, it, it lights it up all over again, exploding into new colors that you didn't know were there. This is where Paul begins with his word of blessing. It's as if he's holding up our salvation, and he's turning that thing around, 
And with each turn, it explodes in another concept that came from this idea of our being a Christian. This is where Paul begins with his word of blessing. He holds our, our salvation up and goes and mentions these things. I want to mention this morning three of those things that he sees as he turns that gem. Uh, there's one that he mentions that we call predestination. Uh, that one gets its own sermon for next week for reasons that you'll understand next week. So stay tuned, right? I want to notice three things that Paul sees. He sees our adoption, he sees our redemption, and he sees our inheritance. First of all, let's look at our adoption. Look at verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. That word you have translated there, adoption, literally translated as this, to make a son. Now, for Jewish people in that culture, they didn't necessarily have a cultural adoption ritual, but the Romans absolutely did. And we believe that's what Paul has got in mind here. And basically, adoption would work like this. Adoption was not with small children. It was mostly with adults. You would have a wealthy benefactor who, for whatever reason, didn't have an heir. And so he would find a young man whom he admired, and he would make them his son. He would adopt him. And once, of course, the document was legal, there were a handful of things that instantaneously became true. The first thing was this. Every single debt that the adoptee had prior to was instantaneously gone every debt that he incurred prior to being adopted was gone. The second thing that happened was the adoptee became as wealthy as the benefactor was. All the assets that his new father had accumulated were his. Thirdly, the father became liable for the behavior of the adoptee and anything that he did during that time forward. And then fourthly, the son had these responsibilities of carrying on the good name of the father. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> That's why the Apostle Paul looked into Roman society and was like, ooh, that, that, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what God did in us when he adopted us. And so what's fascinating about this is, and what people have drawn so much encouragement uh, from over the years, is that adoption is, is not primarily a change in your nature, but it's a change in your status, in other words, adoption does something about you before it does something inside of you. You could think of it this way. In adop adoption is what a family does as opposed to what a doctor does. You know, when a doctor comes to sort of work on you, she's interested in what's inside of you, uh, the inner workings of the processes that ail you. But of course, when a family adopts you, their interest is in, is in you sort of grasping this, this new sense of self. A brand new identity. You used to be this person, but now we're going to treat you as if you're this person. This person doesn't change, but your view of them changes. And so I think this is the reason why Paul got so excited about this. Because once you begin to grasp adoption, there's really not a whole lot more else in the New Testament that will help deal with fearful, doubting people than the doctrine of adoption. And I think I can unpack why for a couple of reasons. The first reason is this, is because adoption roots a Christian's salvation in something that's outside of them instead of something that's inside of them. You know, this is very confusing to people who are in their first entry into Christianity. New converts who respond to the gospel in the midst of a great emotional, maybe an intellectual turmoil. But all of a sudden, those old habits, after a little bit of time, 
those old feelings, those old thoughts, they come back. They despair. They begin to worry. That maybe, maybe I was never God's to begin with. They worry and they fear. And all of a sudden, that worry and fear starts to look exactly like the slavery that they came from. And, so, and pretty soon, they lapse back. But what you have to understand, their failure was not their sinning. Their failure was a lack of realization about the new nature and the new life that Jesus had affected in our adoption. The second reason why I think it's encouraging is because of this contrast that you get in other places in the New Testament, thinking specifically of Galatians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 8. Because what we find in both of those passages is that Christians are described as, and the quote goes like this, as not having a spirit of fear, but of sonship. That's a fascinating contrast, interestingly enough, because Paul has basically said, I have received a huge blessing because my entire motivational structure of life has gone from one where I'm afraid all the time to another that's the excitement of being an adopted child in a brand new family. That's what's changed. So so take the application. If I'm struggling with these life-crippling anxieties and fears, what that means is, is I'm not listening to the Spirit who's trying to tell me that I'm His child. Go back to Galatians 4.1. The quote there goes like this. He says, The heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. That sounds weird. What's he saying? Well, what he's saying is if you were to walk inside any given ancient Near Eastern household, there would be all kinds of children running around. Some of them were children of the servants, slaves themselves. But there'd be other children that were, that were uh, m- uh, members of the family, children of the owner of the house. But if you didn't know better, you couldn't tell which one was which. The children from the house would be doing all kinds of tasks. So this is what I mean by a difference in motivational structure. You see, if you were a slave child in that home, you knew that if you stopped doing what you were supposed to be doing, you're going to be cast out, demoted, rejected. And therefore, your work every day is done under a sense of compulsion, a sense of fear of reprisal. And I think Paul's under question here is, who thrives under that kind of system? Answer, nobody. Why? Because what it does is it keeps negativity as the fundamental currency of your relationship with that person. And it dies. does the opposite. But why is the son working? His motivational structure is completely different because he's got a father who loves him. He knows he's safe. He knows that everything that his father has is at his disposal. He works because he's secure, not insecure. So the doctrine of adoption starts to spill out of Paul. Really, you'll find that this one's a life changer when you really start to grasp it, especially when you discover it for the first time. Because there's not a whole lot of truths that will sort of radically challenge your present mode of existence than this realization that I'm his child. So before we move on to the next point, I, I think there's at least a couple of applications we can make before we move on. The first one I think the first one has to do with our homes, especially when it comes to our parenting. Because, again, as we examine this sort of difference between drawing joy off of a father and and my motivational structure being one that's drawn off that joy, is it possible that I can wrestle in my home with displaying to my children, instead of the safety and the security of, of, of their presence in my home, 
Is it possible that sometimes my fear of, I don't know, being a little too permissive might sort of create that same sense of slavery between us? Is it possible that my idol of control is somehow being wielded against my children somehow that has overtaken my relationship with them where it used to be just the simple joy of them being a child and knowing the child, walking with them through their thousands of problems and struggles that they go through every day. See how subtle that can be? Even we as parents can take on an entirely different way of looking. And I've oftentimes wondered if sometimes the reason why I treat my children that way is because I'm now suspecting that's the way he's treating me. This has become slavery, so everybody else is going to get in chains around me. Hmm. One other thought, though. It not only occurs to me that that applies to our homes, but it may just apply to the way you think about God in the first place. I mean, a slave is full of anxiety and fear that they're always being cast out. But if, we, if what we talked about last week is true, the, the, the slavish fear of a doubting heart may very well be the very thing that's keeping you from being transformed. In other words, the holiness that God calls us to, this radical transformation, is due not because we lack willpower or, or, or resolve, but the fact that we still got him cast in the role of this cosmic killjoy. It's waiting to crush me at the first moment of failure. Was that, would that be a healthy parent-child relationship to you? Of course not. But that's not Paul. Paul is overjoyed at this adoption and the spirit of sonship that motivates him in everything that he does. So that's the first thing. So put, put the diamond back up. Turn it one more time and Paul sees redemption. Look at verse 7. <clears throat> it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. I realize, look, Paul's topic here that he turns to about redemption in blood uh, is probably one of the most inexplicable to an up-and-coming generation. I mean, ever increasingly among even professing Christians, this idea that in order for people to be right with God, there has to be some kind of sacrifice in blood, it's just intolerable. (laughs) The very idea of atonement, where someone's life is offered for another one, it strikes this up-and-coming generation as utterly barbaric. And of course, antiquated at that. Instead, what they say is, you'll hear things like this. You know what we need to do is we have to concentrate on a God of love who who is peaceable and kind and can forgive God out of the sheer sheer instrument of his own goodwill. I mean, think about that. I mean, have you ever wondered why it is that God went to all this theater at sending his son, having him be rejected, having him die a politically motivated death so that it could somehow count for my sins? Sometimes when you say it out loud, it sounds absurd. <laughs> but look, I, I've, I've quoted this before, uh, but, but there's a wonderful quote in Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, where he talks about these violent images that you get in the Bible that make people so uncomfortable, that people think are just beneath God and primitive and whatever else. And what his general question is to say, if you think that, you've probably never really thought through how complicated relationships are in general. Here's his quote. He says, In the real world of relationships, it is impossible to love people with a problem or a need without in some sense sharing or even changing places with them. All real life changing love involves some form of change of of this kinds of exchange. What's he saying? What he's saying is, when was the last time that you attempted to be there for an emotionally broken person? 
pull it up. You wanted to show them genuine concern. How long did it take before you realized that there is no way for that person to have any good come from you unless it's taking out of you, that you become emotionally drained? Otherwise, they're not going to be helped. Like, like there's just no such thing as loving any person unless you sacrifice of yourself as well. It has to be that way. I, I don't know if this is like you, but Ginger and I usually realize this when our children showed up. You, know, you had that sort of moment where you look at that child and you're like, you know what? I don't think anybody's going to take care of this thing except for me. And therefore, there is no way for them to become independent, self-sufficient creatures unless I give of my independence and freedom for years. There's no way. You look down and realize, in order for me to love this creature, someone's going to have to sacrifice. It's either going to be me or it's going to be them. And they can't help themselves. But the funny thing is, is every relationship is this way. Every relationship costs. That's what redemption means. On the cross, Jesus comes to sacrifice for his people as the highest expression of his love. No greater love is any man than this, than that he lay down his life for his brother. And it's the only way to love in that regard. And what's interesting about this, this is, this is not just for relationships that are not taxing on us emotionally. How much more for those that are actually incredibly painful? How much harder is it to love someone who's offended you time and time and time again? I'm guessing in a room this large, like there's, there's plenty of families who will stand up and bear witness to what it's like to deal with someone in their family who's wrestling through the pain of addiction? Probably tell us some stories about how much it takes out of you to love a broken person, a hurting person. So look, here's a summary of it all. This culture's insistent, insistence that you know, there is no sin, sin. You know, there's just misguided preferences. There's no law other than the law to be true to yourself. Maybe you should respect others' wishes in the process. Maybe. All of it is just smoke and mirrors. <laughs> because the truth of the matter is, from a real inward problem of guilt, it gnaws at this culture. And every now and then, it comes out. And I love to notice it. <laughs> People know that guilt is real. They know that their denials of it all are not true. Because it seeps out. One of my favorite examples of this is from a movie that came out years ago that you need to watch the TBS version of. It's called The Fisher King. And the story is about, uh, it Jeff, stars Jeff Bridges, who's a, a New York City uh, shock jock radio personality, who after kind of grandstanding one night, unwittingly incites a crazy person to march into a restaurant and commit a mass shooting, killing all the people inside. Well, the story kind of twists when, you know, completely weighed down with the guilt of what he's caused... Uh, Jeff Bridges' character comes across a man who himself has gone crazy because his wife was one of the people that was in the restaurant. So Jeff Bridges spends the whole movie trying to go on this mission to just help this man in the hopes that it will ease his guilt. And my favorite line of the movie is where Bridges looks down at one point and he, and he mutters to nobody in particular, I just wish I could pay the fine and go home. You ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you weren't just having a bad day, but you're having a bad life? What causes that? Well, the Bible has a framework to make sense of that ache. And it basically is created by this intersection of a God who runs the universe in accordance with his perfect character, 
and the unavoidable fact that you have violated that will time and time again. So yes, there is a sense of judgment that hangs over your life, and that judgment is its own form of slavery, is it not? Paul stands up and says that the message of the cross is that there is someone who will buy you back out of your slavery by removing your guilt. Jesus is our benefactor. He's the one. And all of a sudden that finally hits you, then you start rejoicing with Paul. So one more time, the diamond is spun and showed us adoption. Then it turned again and showed us redemption. But thirdly, he sees an inheritance. He's talked about his past, what happened there. Now he starts to look at his future. And in verse 11 and verse 14, he presents this really weird contrast that if you noticed it, kind of sounds like a contradiction. Look at it again. In verse 11, Paul says that we have obtained an inheritance. We got it. But then in verse 14, as he starts to talk about it, he says that uh, that he talks about this inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Well, Oh, no, wait a minute. Which is it? Do we have the inheritance now? Is it ours, Paul? I want to hear about that. That sounds cool. Or is it something that we're waiting for? You know, the uh, pie in the sky when you die thing, right? Which is it? Is it a contradiction? This is what Paul means. Paul means that by the Holy Spirit, the way God works inside of his people and has already begun to work in him is he starts with a taste. It begins with a sample, an appetizer, if you will, of what will only then be the full meal. So yes, you've received the inheritance, but it's just a little bit. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above, we sing. That's what's coming, but it's not complete. But listen, God is not just some friendly grandfather saying, oh, trust me, heaven and all that's going to be wonderful for you. What he does, though, is he gives us these tangible, palpable expressions, palpable expressions of future glory. You've got it now. You get tidbits now of what we'll get in full then. Of course, it's a life-changing reality. I didn't, you know, a number of years ago, Ginger recorded uh, uh, an old Miss football game for me while I was out of town. And it was remarkable as I sat there watching the rebels anxiously, as I am wont to do. I'm sure nobody in here struggles with that. Ginger was cool as a cucumber. You want to know why? Because she already saw the game. She knew how it ended. And there's a difference between the way someone behaves and lives their life if they feel like they know the ending. And so Paul's trying to say there is something that's coming in the future. And you've got to know this. You have... You know, for 25 years in a different life, I was, I was in campus ministry. And part of the thing that happens in campus ministry is it's oftentimes you have to walk people through oftentimes the very first time when they discover that life can be just immeasurably sad. It's the first time oftentimes. And what happens is, is that little drop goes into the middle of the pond of their soul and it starts to send reverberations out, you know? It's not just that I lost my job, it's that I am hopeless, Failure and pain goes out into every corner of our lives, and we suddenly realize that there's no, there's no good around me at all. And Paul goes, mm-mm, mm-mm. Yes, there's an inheritance, so it's always going to be a mixture, but don't miss the down payment. The Holy Spirit's already brought it to you. And you're thinking to yourself, ah, that sounds important. When did he do that? One way is by bearing witness to you that you're a child of God. That's one of the ways. But don't miss the other one. The down payment is also the beginnings of the work of the Spirit to change you, to make you holy and blameless in His sight. 
Look, what that means is, is that we're already experiencing the healing now. In degrees, yes, but it's there. And it's our inheritance. It's coming to us, right? Paul can look around and realize, my conscience is being healed slowly, but it is. My fears are being settled. My my family is reuniting. My neighborhood is cleaning up. The poor are getting fed. The down and out are lifted up. That's the down payment. It's not complete. But you know what? I see the traces. I see the fingerprints. I can notice the residue of change. The hopes that it won't always be this way. That it won't always hurt. That my failures won't always mock me. Sinclair Ferguson says that the Holy Spirit is the active agent of the Godhead. I love that. If you see anywhere where the Lordship of Christ is being made manifest or clear or seen in the world around you, it must be the action of the Holy Spirit. And the crazy thing is, is once you see it, you begin to be like, God is at work. And it's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing to see God's fingerprint over every area of life. You know, one of the hard parts about having your children get older is you don't get to watch the best of children's programming. Some children's programming, I don't miss it all. That Barney character is happily out of my home. But I miss the Pixar movies because I love Pixar movies. And my favorite of all time is probably The Incredibles. And one of my favorite scenes from that movie is when Mr. Incredible, who has had a really, really bad day, climbs out of his car. And there's a little boy sort of wheeling up the um, sidewalk on his big wheel or something. Mr. Incredible looks at him, kind of growls at him. What are you waiting for? The boy says, I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. Mr. Incredible drops his head and sort of mutters, me too, kid. Me too. Look, is it fair to ask, like, what are you excited about? (laughs) What's driving you? Is there something that thrills you enough that might actually help you push forward to a real changed life? And my question is, is it worth it? And, And again, it's, it's not by way of example. It's by way of illustration. We're about to install a group of men who, if you take all of their motivations in putting this down and sort of got it to its most pure version, what they believe is, is that it might not be that you have to be driven to God like a cattle prod, but that you might be drawn to him by nothing, by, by nothing other than delight and sheer joy. I know all these men. I know that's what's motivating them fundamentally in all of it. And that's reason to rejoice. If not to rejoice, if just to be curious. That you come back and look in it. That you'd study it more. That you find yourself a small group and dive into it. That you find yourself a way in which I can get exposed to that truth again and again and again. Because if there's joy there, it'll be worth it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace during this hour, Father, to see that very clearly, to hold that gem up, Father, to turn it and to see the wonderment and the beauty that comes from that. Father, we so desperately need that. We want that to be like that kaleidoscope that a child sees as they look through and see the wonderment of it all. So Father, as we sing, O church, arise, would you raise us up? Even as we see you raising up 
leaders, men who are willing to be elders and deacons, would you raise us all up in joy that we might sing to the world exactly what you've done for us? Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.